Hello and welcome to Business Line Podcast. Former PepsiCo Chairman and CEO Indra Noe's book, My Life in Full, Work, Family and Our Future, published by Hachet India, is just out. This conversation is an interview preceding her book launch with the senior associate editor of the Hindu Business Line, Vinay Kamat. Indra Noe is a chemistry graduate of Madras Christian College and an MBA from IIM Calcutta. She went on to later earn another MBA from the Yale School of Management in the US. She was the first woman of color and an immigrant to head a Fortune 50 company. In this interview around her book, Noe ruminates about her growing up years in Madras, her family, and the values she inculcated that helped her succeed so phenomenally. She talks about the mentors in her life, her first hesitant steps in the US as a student, the direction she set PepsiCo in, encountering racism, role of women in the workplace, and her advice for business leaders in a post-COVID world. Thank you for tuning in. Over to Vinay. Namaskaram from Nalamadras. Namaskaram. How are you, Vinay? Fine, thank you. Let me start by asking you where it all began and right here in Madras, you know. So what would you say were, you know, uh, the values, the learnings and the environment and, you know, the Madras that you grew up in, which helped you succeed so phenomenally in the U.S.? There must have been some cultural fix which happened here in Madras, which helped you. <laughs> uh, I think I'm a product of my family, my upbringing, the city and the country. Uh, you know, I've been reflecting recently about the times that I was born and grew up. Uh, you know, I was born just eight years after India got independence. When I think about it and put it in that historical context, I realized that we were a new country. I mean, we were a civilization that was thousands of years old, but we were a new country emerging from 350 years of uh, rule by colonial powers. And India had just emerged and I was born. So Uh, it was a time when women were just emerging into the educational institutions, into professional schools, into places of work. So it was a very interesting time that I grew up. The amazing thing about my upbringing was very strict family. As you know, I mean, it's a good South Indian, Tamilian family, a very strict upbringing, uh, incredible focus on education. Uh, life revolved around education, grades, doing well in school, Uh, not focusing on any extracurricular activities beyond what the school demanded. Um, we did not live um, luxuriously. We never took vacations. We never ate out. If we ever suggested to my mother we should eat out, she said, I'll make it. And so we never ate out. Um, and we never, I don't think we ever went, went on a vacation except once in our entire life. So there were, those were all considered frivolous. Uh, we had a grandfather at home who was the enforcer. Um, and the loving enforcer, I should say, brought structure to the family in terms of the kids, made us redo our homework, taught us, was the role model. And then the most amazing thing about our family, Vinay, is that the girls and boys were treated equally. Um, my father, my grandfather, and my mother would say, dream as much as you can. You can be whatever you want. And there should be no difference between men and women. So we were allowed to study. We were allowed to engage in activities that did not impact our study, but uh, extracurriculars around it. And um, I still remember my father used to drive me to French class, to German class, everything he used to drive me because he said, as far as this is learning, I'll drive you. 
So I grew up in that sort of a household. Um, and finally, I'd say is I have a sister who's a year older than me. The competition with my sister, a healthy competition with my sister helped because, uh, you know, I always looked up to her and I wanted to be at least as good as her. So the combination of all that gave me a great start in life. I often say that I won the lottery of life. Um, there, would, there would have been many in your growing up years who have perhaps been from the same environment, the same education, the same family background, but something helped you or made you transcend that to actually, you know, uh, go, and, go and do a double MBA in the US. And so what made you do that? I mean, what made you, was it the pull of your friends from the US who were already there or did you? I think it was a combination of things. I think it was uh, at that time, um, the US was considered the seat of innovation, the seat of culture, the seat of music, arts, everything. And it was the most aspirational country to be a part of. And there was a significant brain drain from India. All the IITs, the best graduates were all going to the United States. And all the friends I knew kept saying, you know, this is just a great place to study and to contribute to. And you ought to think about how to come to the United States. And that never occurred to me at all because, uh, you know, I was working in India, everything was comfortable. Uh, but then the pull of the uh, United States and what it stood for was always there in the back of my head. Uh, and then this article I read in Newsweek, which talked about the Yale School of Management having just opened, clearly created a major thought in my head that perhaps here is a way to retool myself to thinking about how the public and private should come together. Because through the jobs I had and the way I was you know, watching the city and the country around me, it was very clear that companies alone couldn't do everything. Government alone couldn't do everything. They all had to come together to work to better uh, societies and communities in the country. So I thought coming to Yale and studying this blend of public and private management would actually enhance my learning. And I applied, I got in, then the rest is history. So you talked about the role of having uh, very good mentors. You talked about, you know, you talked about Norman Wade, you talked about Gerard and all the other mentors that you had. Who among them would you regard as the biggest mentors in your life? And who have you mentored that, you're, you know, have, have you changed the course of his history or her history? I would say that I was one of those very lucky people where many men, mostly men, I'd say, I don't believe I've had a female mentor until recently. Uh, but most of my mentors have been men. And not only did they mentor me, they supported me, they promoted me, uh, they uh, advocated for me to you know, be considered for bigger positions or to be sent to various programs. So right through my life, uh, mentors came out of the woodwork to say, you know, I believe in this person. I honestly believe if you contribute to the job or to whatever you're doing, uh, people will want to mentor you because they think you're going to go places and they want to be part of your journey. And so whether it was R.K. Bharatan, when I first started out to Essel Rao and Norman Wade, at Metro Beertzel to, you know, when I came to the United States, Carl Stern at Boston Consulting, then Gerhard Schumacher, they just became my mentors out of their own choice. And uh, on my part, I respected my mentors. I listened to them. When I did something different from what they suggested to me, I always went back and told them why I didn't do what they asked me to do or suggested I do. 
And the other thing is I kept in touch with all of them. Uh, as I moved up in the corporate ladder, I didn't ignore my mentors. I kept in touch with as many people as I could. I mean, I still talk to Essel Rao, and he is 40 or 50 years ago. And so all of these people uh, taken together are the reason I am where I am today. Now, I know that my responsibility is to pay it back. And uh, I've spent an incredible amount of time in PepsiCo mentoring executives, men and women. Um, I you know, spend enormous amount of time with them. Uh, I give them stretch goals, but then I help them get to those stretch goals. So I just don't give them a stretch goal and walk away. I tell them how to attain that goal so that they too can aspire to bigger and better things. Um, and I'd say that in my last six years with PepsiCo, I produced for industry nine CEOs of public companies. So I feel good about the track record. I would have liked them all to stay in PepsiCo, but you know, there's only one room for one CEO in PepsiCo. But we had an incredible pipeline of talent. PepsiCo still has an incredible pipeline of talent. But I feel very good that I paid it forward by also being a mentor to senior executives. And now I'm mentoring. I just finished one big session of mentoring 20 South Asian high school kids, which was also very, very fulfilling. Are you still continuing your mentoring role in the for the corporate sector? A lot. I uh, mentor a lot of uh, CEOs and startups. I serve as an advisor to them. Uh, but I don't do it in a formal way. I tell anytime you have a problem or you have an issue, you just want to have a sounding board, call me. Um, if I'm in a meeting with them and they don't quite come off right, I ask them to come and see me privately and then I give them coaching on how to improve their performance. So I think all leaders who've had a, a good start in life and have done well in the corporate world have to give back. Because at the end of the day, um, the legacy you leave behind is the people. And uh, the more you can develop great people, the better it is. So you uh, talked a great deal about, you know, your uh, uh, credo at PepsiCo, you know, performance with purpose. And so um, does this continue at the corporation or has it veered from that path of, you know, the values of nourish, replenish and cherish that you've written about? I'd say, in fact, um, uh, you know, I set the framework and started the company towards that. Um, the company actually is doubling down in certain areas. The amount of work that's going on in environmental sustainability is spectacular. Um, the focus on zero calorie products is also spectacular. And so I think that every CEO should put their own mark on the company. But if you look at the new CEO's umbrella strategy is still winning with purpose. So it's taking performance with purpose now to a whole new level. So I'm proud of what Ramon is doing with the company. So um, the book you talk about, you know, a couple of times where you had encountered some undercurrent of racial overtones uh, when you were house hunting and then you didn't take that house and decided mm -hmm. to move on. Um, did you ever, ever experience that in corporate America during your time there? In the My time in cor the corporate world? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I've, I experienced it many, many times. Um, you know, sometimes in meetings, sometimes in interactions with people, sometimes with board members. But, you know, um, it was small. It was, uh, it was not significant racial overtones. You feel it. Sometimes people make snide remarks or they um, uh, treat you differently because you're so different. But that's inevitable. You know, I made a choice to come to a country where people are very different from me. 
And uh, I tried to fit in as much as I could, but I also kept my individuality. And so I know that there will be some, you know, snide remarks or comments or some behavior that will offend me. As long as the majority of people were welcoming and worked well with me, I never let the 10 or 15% define the other 85 or 90%. So I focused on the larger number of people. The point that I'd make though, is that only in a country like America could somebody like me have come in as an immigrant and become CEO of an iconic quintessentially American company. Only in America. I don't believe, believe that any other country in the world this could have happened. So I still look at my life here as a very positive story, not just for me, but for the country too. And the way it, it's really still a meritocracy. Um, uh, what would you say with the decision that influenced the course of PepsiCo from your time as CFO and CFO, CEO the most, like whether it was selling the restaurant business, which you've talked about, buying Quaco, Santropicana, what influenced the course of PepsiCo? I think um, over my time, my 25 years at PepsiCo, the world around us changed. The nature of the competition changed. Consumer tastes changed. Um, government focus on nutrition and health stepped up. So, so many things changed in the environment. And I honestly believe that companies ought to anticipate where the consumer is going and make the changes in anticipation of where the consumer is going. Uh, and so the whole articulation of performance of purpose was because I sensed the entire market globally was going a certain way. People wanted to, and many times, uh, you know, were being told to eat healthier, appropriately so. Um, environmental issues were becoming major, whether it was plastics or water use. I grew up with water shortage in Madras, as you did, Vinay. And to me, water was very personal. So we had to do something about it. And then people... People are what makes us successful or not. So how we treat people as assets, not tools of the trade, was also very important. So over my time at PepsiCo, I could see CEO after CEO, how we were making changes in response to all of these trends. When I became CEO, I just accelerated the changes. So I think every CEO of any company should do everything future back. Anticipate where the world is going, you can't make changes overnight. So anticipate where the world is going, make the changes for the changing world in a gradual way. So you can still deliver performance, but retool the company for a future that's going to be different. And if you didn't do that, you'd be disrupted. You'll become a non-factor in, in the corporate world. So um, ma'am, so though you retired, I'm sure you still have a lot, lot to contribute. Uh, so, would you look for a role or has anything been offered in the U.S. government? If it's offered, would you take it up? I am not a political person, so it's tough for me to work in the political arena because um, politics, by definition, requires incredible amount of consensus building and evolving a solution that uh, you know fits everybody's needs as opposed to getting to the right answer. I just don't have that kind of patience. I admire all the people who work in the political arena. I have great respect for them, but I'm a corporate type. I need to work on a project, get it done, move on to the next. So I just, if you want something done fast, if you want something done efficiently and objectively, I'm the person. Um, if I have to work in the political arena, I'm not the person. But an executive role? Don't offer you an executive role or? 
I just, I mean, I'm retired. I'm happy on boards, teaching at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. Uh, I sit on multiple nonprofit boards. I'm having a good life when I don't wish me anything else. <laughs> so, um, so ma'am, you've written a lot about the role of, you know, women in the workplace and how it's important to, you know, organizations step up and have this work-life balance. And uh, so do you see things improving from the time uh, you set it in motion and say in PepsiCo, do you see it improving in the corporate sector as a whole? It's improving, but it's glacial. I think that uh, there's no question from where I, when I started in the corporate world in the U.S. to now, things have improved substantially. At PepsiCo too, I mean, we've made so many changes to make the company more supportive of young family builders, not just women, young family builders. So we're doing all the right things, whether it's maternity and paternity care, flexible work hours, remote working, on-site and near-site childcare. Um, sick baby care. I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff to help our employees. But I think as a society, we should look at this not as a female issue, but a family issue. And we should look at this not as feminists, but as economists. Because if you want the best and the brightest to work in the economy, to further the economy, women are a big part of the talent pool. They're getting the best grades. They're doing phenomenally well in schools and colleges. I don't know if you have a daughter, Vinay, but I tell you, I look at the caliber of women. My God, they study hard. They want to make a difference. They want to contribute. They want to have the power of the purse. They don't want to be um, lifelong unpaid laborers. They want to have, you know, they want to have a life too. And so, but they also want to have families. So we have to create support structures to bring them into the workplace, to give them the choice to come into the workplace. We're not forcing anybody, it's a choice. Choice to come into the workplace, at the same time have a family, at the same time feel fulfilled in their entire life. Uh, and so I think the time has come to have a serious talk about what can we do to create that support structure. You, know, you talked about how your family kept you pretty grounded and, you know, humble, especially that comment by your mother about keeping your crown in the garage, which must have been a shocker for you at that time. But I guess in the overall scheme of things. Um, and I'm sure, Vinay, you were not surprised by it at all. You would say the same thing. <laughs> so how tough is it for a successful business person to, you know, retain the core value of humility? I'm glad you said business person, because I think in the past, it was expected that the woman would leave the crown in the garage. I would argue that both husband and wife should leave the crown in the garage. When you come home, it's the home. You know, there's always going to be office work you have to do at home, especially when you have senior level jobs that, you know, have a demand on you 24-7. But I think don't walk in thinking everybody at home are your employees. You know, if you start looking at them that way, then it becomes impersonal and you're asking them to do things which they go, wait a minute, aren't you my dad or mom? Uh, how about if we work together on this? And so I think we have to walk into the house saying, now I have a different role to play. I'm mom, I'm father, I'm husband, wife, whatever it is. I think we have to remember that we have two ears and one mouth and use it proportionally. And um, we have to play a different role when we come home. I think we should stop saying that women should be judged on how they behave at home and men should be 
would, you know, men should be given a crown to wear when they come home. I think those days have changed. I think we've got to say, both of you leave your crown in the garage. Both of you work together, share the responsibilities and work for the betterment of the family. I think that would be my utopian perspective. And I'll be honest with you, my husband is exactly what he does. And um, he's remarkably supportive. And uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to watch somebody who models the behavior that I'm looking for. So uh, you've also stressed on the fact that without the support structure that the family offered, that you could not have risen to such heights. And, but maybe not everybody is blessed with that kind of a family structure. So then they have to rely on organizations to offer that support. Isn't, isn't that right? That's exactly right, Vinay. And that's the thing. Either communities form these support structures to help families in the community, or we have to set up you know, excellent childcare centers to you know, help uh, working mothers, in particular, or working parents still have a job outside the home and care for their children. The thing that worries me is through the pandemic, uh, if you look at nurses, if you look at doctors or women or men who may have had family responsibilities, they were on two shifts, three shifts. They were not allowed to go home because once you go home, you are out of the bubble and you can't go back. When that happens, how are they supposed to take care of their families? Did we even think about that? Um, if you look at the jobs of the future with aging societies, you need more care workers for senior people. You need more nurses. You need more doctors. You need more teachers. These are all professions which are going to need a lot of women to work outside the home. With that given, and we say, we're not gonna really invest in a support structure for you so that you can also have families, I think that's a wrong, wrong, wrong way to think about the issue. We have to think of not just the population, we have to think of the people. We have to think about how people can enable having a family, how we can enable people to have a family and a job outside the home so that the economy improves. You know, the whole system becomes more well-oiled, if you want to call it that. So let me just switch tracks to, you know, asking you about uh, you, these past one and a half years have been pretty unprecedented for India, for the world. And who do you, your advice be for business leaders in this context? You know, how do you handle the way forward? And how do you handle your workforce and your bottom line? And what would your advice be? You know, we came out of a uh, most disruptive period. I never thought I'd live to see the world shut down. 70% of the world shut down at the same time. I never thought I'd see pictures of big Indian cities absolutely deserted. I never thought. I never thought I'd see a picture of Chennai completely deserted. It was unsettling to say the least. And I'm not talking after eight o'clock in the night, which is how it used to be when I was growing up, but I'm talking during the day. Um, I never thought I'd see New York City uh, as quiet and, uh, um, you know, I, it was just an unsettling time. I think that this time should have given everybody um, a moment to reflect on what they want society to be going forward. Um, what do they want the support structures to be for families? Uh, what do they want the role of companies to be? How should they work with governments? Um, because I think at the end of the day, these moments of disruption should force people to sit back and say, should a new kind of company emerge? 
where companies and governments and nonprofits work closely together to improve societies, to improve communities. Um, should we um, step up to be toe-to-toe -to -toe with the government in addressing pandemics, uh, crises, as opposed to saying, this is a government problem. Let me just retreat and keep my head down. How should all this work? I hope that corporates in every country reflect on this and say, what more could we have done to uh, get out of the pandemic versus what we really did? And um, did we really lean into help? Could we have done more? Um, going forward, what do we need to help the government be prepared for? Because our governments can't do everything, Vinay. It just cannot. That's why you have big corporations. That's why you have NGOs. You have various other entities that support government. I think the time has come for us to think about a genuine public-private partnership on how to improve countries, societies, communities, with a sense to not making the next billion dollars, but um, thinking about the health of the people, the health of communities, addressing inequality. All of these issues should come to the fore. I think we've, I think we've lo we lost our sense of humanity. I hope it's come back, and I hope it allows us to reset the equations we all have uh, between companies, societies, governments, all of that. Come together and talk about what needs to be done with an eye to making society way better. For example, let me give you an example. If you think about uh, increasing the profit margin substantially for many products, sit back and ask yourself, is that an essential product for society? Should we think about gouging the consumers or should we think about treating consumers in a more reasonable way so that we don't use this opportunity to extract extraordinary profits. Okay, so it's still capitalism at its best, but capitalism with a bit of a heart. Um, so just again, switching tracks to talk about your time at Yale, you know, what were your biggest learnings at Yale? And, you know, apart from the fact that its School of Management offered this, what you talked about, the private and public private uh -huh. management course. Yale, when I came to Yale, it was the first time I had left the United States. So to me, it was a brand new experience. It was terrifying. I was lonely, uh, but somehow powered through it. Um, I also learned so much at Yale, you know, how discussions happen, how arguments are framed, and uh, classroom discussions were rich. Uh, the professor was one of us. Um, they were willing to push the boundaries of the thinking and the reading. And it was a whole different experience than the classrooms in India. Remember, I went to some of the best institutions, so I have nothing against MCC or IMCAL. They were fantastic. But Yale took it to a whole new level. And so I learned so much. I grew so much. And um, um, the way the professors encourage you, support you, meet you outside classroom hours to give you some more coaching, I was a beneficiary of all of that. And so I think um, when I came to the country and I say I'm a product of the world's largest and the world's oldest democracy, I'm also a product of various educational institutions in, the, in this democracy that stepped up to help me. Uh, and Yale was number one in them. And various professors who stepped up to say, you know, there's something here in this lady. Let's see how we can give her a little bit more tailwinds so she can do even better. 
They coached me for interviews. Uh, they taught me how to dress. I mean, so many things that Yale did for me. I'm deeply in Yale's debt. So I know you've done a lot for, you know, MCC and, uh, you know, you've given a women's lounge. I think you contributed to labs as well. And so do you plan anything for uh, Madras as, a, as your legacy? I mean, is there anything? I don't know. I don't know how to work with the political system, but I'm going to do everything I can. You know, I rebuilt all the labs at Holy Angels, MCC, chemistry labs. You know, all of those looks fantastic. Uh, the women's lounge looks great. Uh, there's one thing I'd like to think about in working with some of the other senior executives in India is thinking about the Anganwadi system that exists in India and perhaps taking one community and designing an Anganwadi 3.0 or 4.0, which could serve as a backbone for childcare for people who are not so well off. And, you know, I have to think about how to do it, but that's one topic that's sort of intriguing to me and, I want to see how I can help give back that way. Um, you talked about your meeting with uh, Steve Jobs and uh, uh, design thinking inputs, which mm. are very important. So do you think uh, uh, today's MBA curricula needs to be changed to have more design thinking in that? Because you also talked about the importance of design when you hired the Italian mm, Maro. Mm. I think so much has to change in the MBA curriculum. It's not just design. It's thinking about how different disciplines come together to solve a business issue. A business issue is never a narrow business issue. It's a political issue, economic issue, environmental issue, legal issue. How do you bring that all together and talk about it? We have to talk about capitalism 2.0. You know, how do you keep capitalism as a driving force in economies, but give it a twist which says, worry about the cost you pass on to society. Um, you know, there's a lot that has to change uh, with what we teach business schools. Um, and I think conversation has started. The changes are happening in the margin. But I think uh, at some point, we have to think about redesigning the curriculum. And I spoke at the uh, Association of MBA directors. And um, I shared some of my thoughts with them. I think there's an opportunity to remake the curriculum so we develop students for the future so that um, we can have even more responsible citizens as we face the issues that are inevitably going to strike us and whether cybersecurity issues or privacy issues or pandemics or outbreaks or whatever. So you observed uh, managements in India as well as in the US and all. Do you, you see Indian managements are have now changed in, the, in terms of their workings and are they more global in nature? I think it's changing. I think India has come a long way. I'm uh, in awe of the entrepreneurial environment in India, how many startups and the valuations they're commanding. Um, I talk to a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who are in startups and I advise some of them. But um, um, I must say they're brilliant. They're driven by a sense of purpose, but they're also driven by a desire to cash out quickly. I think, uh, I think we have to build enduring companies for the country. So how do you not just cash out, but reinvest to grow? A company like Jeff Bezos did with Amazon. How do you build an enduring company uh, so that 
it has scale and longevity as opposed to to sell it and get get out. Uh, I think governance could improve. Uh, corporate governance. I look at the corporate governance laws in the U.S. Um, I think corporate governance in India is only now becoming something that people are talking about. Governance laws, um, and I think that uh, I think the country has to come to terms with its posture regarding FDI. You know, is there going to be a consistent framework to think about FDI? Are companies going to be consulted when change in laws happen? But those are all for the Indian government to figure out. All that I'll tell you is, as a foreign company investing in India or being part of other foreign companies investing in India, India is a very desirable destination. Very desirable. India has got the demographic dividend. India is a country with lots of talent. It understands capitalism. India is a very desirable country. But India can also be a frustrating country to do business in. So I think. Um, you know, and, and, and the government is working on this. I think the, what's the best way to operate the country for the benefit of the citizens of India at the same time, provide foreign direct investors a framework within which they can operate in a, uh, in a way that doesn't sort of jerk them around. What would your advice be for young Indians who are seeking out, uh, you know, to come to the US to study and perhaps to work? Or would you say that today in India, the opportunities have opened up far more and would you advise them to continue being here or? I think the big difference now is you don't have to come to the US to study and work here. You can study and work in India, travel to the US and go back to India. So you've got this incredible mobility that's come in now. In those days, you know, you were given $500 and that's it. Um, and, you know, travel was limited. Now it's the world is your oyster. And so you can study from India in, in U.S. institutions because of online learning. You can travel anytime you want. So think hard before you cross the ocean and go to a different country to study and work. Think hard about what you're giving up before you go there. And think hard about what you're going to get when you go there. So, again, it's an individual choice of people, but also understand all the challenges of going to a new country and starting over. So, as long as you go there with your eyes open and you're ready for all the challenges, you, know, you make your choices which country you want to be in. But India is in a different place now than it was when I was growing up. And the world is more open these days. And so... Um, the opportunities in front of everybody, just fantastic. If you like what you heard, share the link, check out our site, thehindubusinessline.com and watch our videos on youtube.com backslash thehindubusinessline. That is youtube.com backslash thehindubusinessline. Thank you for tuning in. You'll hear more from us next time.